If you have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John. <laughs> Lisa finally got it. <laughs> Gospel of John, chapter 2, we're going to read, um, beginning at verse 1 through verse 12. This is God's Word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, Have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. He did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drank freely from the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and stayed there. For a few days. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, as we come to this very well-known story in Scripture, we, we wouldn't come with our minds already settled on what it is that Scripture is telling us, Lord. We would open our ears to hear things that your Spirit is speaking to the church Lord, may you be glorified in this place, and may you anoint your word to accomplish the purpose for which it is sent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every time I talk about this particular story, people have a tendency to do the same kind of message, the same kind of way, and I, I, I'm guilty. I've done that as well. And when I come to this, you know, it's a, an easy opportunity to talk about should we drink wine or shouldn't we drink wine or sh what does it mean when Jesus calls his mother woman? And we'll talk about those things. But I always want to ask myself, what is he, why is this the first miracle? Raising the dead, man, that is an intense miracle, right? When, you know, Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb and calls out, Lazarus, right, come forth. So I ask myself, you know, why? Why? What are you telling us? What? John, you know, he's, the Bible tells us in John chapter 20, uh, I think around verse 30, John says, many things Jesus did that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and believing you would have life in his name. So John, John picked it, right? He went out and he said, man, of all the things Jesus did, this is the one I want to kick it off with. And um, 
So in, in preparation and study, I, I hope, I hope that, uh, that we're able to kind of crack the seal on that a little bit and understand what is going on. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana. Now, you remember last time we met Nathaniel. We'll find out in John 21, Nathaniel's from <coughs> Cana, which is a town that didn't really get along super good with Nazareth. You remember Nathaniel's the guy who said, can anything good come from Nazareth, which is five miles away from Cana and about the same size? And interesting now, we see Jesus in Cana for a wedding. The mother of Jesus is there. Jesus is invited. And in that, we would understand that Mary has some type of official role with the wedding. Relation, she's, she's a part of something. We're certainly going to see that she is aware of a problem before anybody else was, you know. And so uh, the scripture tells us, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And so Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My, my hour has not yet come. So his mother says to the servants, do whatever he says. <clears throat> There's actually quite a bit to unpack here. First thing I want us to, to understand is that Mary had complete confidence in Jesus. So when there's a problem, she goes to him. And I want to build on why that's a problem, but hold on to that idea. We're going we're gonna to talk about that in a moment. But she understands, look, this is not good. Here's, here's the deal. The, the wedding, a Jewish wedding, took uh, at least a year from the moment of betrothal. So once you decide, hey, we're going to get married, I think we're going to get married, okay, well, then what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to begin the plan. And, and the, just, you should see the parallel here in a Jewish wedding and what Jesus has in his relationship with the bride of Christ. See, what the groom would do is he would then withdraw. They signed a, a, a agreement. So from that moment, you had to be divorced. Even though you hadn't had a wedding, you hadn't consummated the ceremony yet, you were married. In order for you to break up, there had to be a breaking of the contract. So the contract is written, and that man goes back to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride. And his, his goal, however long it took, a year or more, whatever time it took, he was to build her a place so that she had a place to come to in his father's house, usually a part of the, the family, whatever the family owned, an addition would be put together for that. And then he had to make all the arrangements. Well, it's not how we do it today. We, we get it the other way. The groom made all the arrangements. And it was his ability to tell his bride, you will never have to worry. I am able to take care of you. So I got a place. I got the wedding all set. I got the food all set. I got all the wine we're going to need. See, the message that's happening with the result of losing the wine is the groom, the bride hearing the groom's not able to take care of me. Or if not enough. And if there's not enough now at the beginning, there probably won't be enough tomorrow. Maybe there won't be enough next week. Here's the crazy thing. Most of us don't know that we're all the groom and that we're not enough. 
that we don't have all the solutions. We don't have all the ways to to deal with things. We, we can do the best laid plans of mice and men. I remember my father, you know, he, he lived his life. He worked the job he was supposed to work, got the retirement he was supposed to get. That's supposed to take care of you the rest of your life, right? And then it was, I don't know what they call it, Black Thursday? In 2000-something. Was it 2009? I don't remember what year it was. But anyway, whatever that time, the stock market crashed where all my dad's money was. And it went like this. You are not enough. In John chapter 1, the scripture tells us that light came to the darkness. You remember? But the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness didn't comprehend it. And here in this very first miracle of Jesus, we have this wedding happening, right? And the groom doesn't know. Now, the groom somewhere in the back of his mind is probably doing addition, right? Like, okay, there's... Like 300 extra people here. Uh, I don't know if we got enough stuff. Um, hopefully everything's going to work out. It's all going to last. But he's also enjoying the, the, the parties, enjoying his bride. He's, he's having fun. He's, he's not the guy, the servant over there, who just took the last ladle out and filled up the last cup and ran to Mary and said, we're out of wine. Scripture tells in John chapter 1 that and, and on into John chapter 3, that the, the world is condemned. But does the world know it? Most people you talk to about what Christianity is all about, they think it's all about having more good deeds than bad. That's karma. That's not Christianity. Chris, Christianity would state you can't have enough good deeds. Christianity would say you don't have enough wine. You're not going to be able to take care of everything. And you start to think about that picture that's happening in the background behind the wedding and the, and the groom celebrating and all this planning and everything he thought he needed to be able to proclaim that he was going to be the solution to taking care of her. Everything she was ever going to need. Now, most of you guys... Around here, married. Some of you maybe are going to get married one day. You won't believe this, but the person you fall in love with when you say the vows, there will come a day when you will say, I'm not sure you're everything I need. <laughs> you, you, your, your shining armor begins to tarnish, right? But you see, God's word declared that al- already. In, in Ecclesiastes, right, it talks about this idea about how can two walk together unless they're in agreement, right? The idea of being in agreement, being entwined together, right? Going in one direction, one place. If we're not in agreement, we're going to stumble and fall. And then the scripture says, and a three-strand cord is not easily broken because it's when God is in that marriage relationship that the marriage is actually everything that you need it to be. Not because you are everything she needs or she is everything you need, but together in your relationship with one another and with the Lord, you have everything you need. And that need that is being fulfilled is primarily being fulfilled by Jesus. And you won't even feel it. Just like the groom in his wedding in this story. 
the groom's going to hear the good news, right? Man, dude, you're pretty awesome. Don't you think the groom is going, what in the world is this guy talking about? I'm trying to do my calculations. I'm pretty sure we should be out any time now. And what do you mean I saved the best for last? Dude, I gave you everything I had. I ain't got nothing else. In the same way, in our relationship, in our marriages, in our walk with Christ, it is he that does the job. It's he that redeems me, justifies me, uh, unites my wife and myself together. It's he who brings the healing in our relationship. It's he that does it all. To him be the glory, right? So you have this shadow happening, and <clears throat> Mary comes to Jesus, and, and Jesus says to her, woman, and a lot of people want to make up this thing, oh, woman, well, you know, it's respectful, but it's not, it's not, it's not very uh, motherly. It's not like saying mama. But this is the exact same word he's going to, he's going to use later on when he's on the cross. And he looks down at his mother and he's going to say, Woman, behold your son. John, son, behold your mother. When Jesus is speaking to her, we've... We've seen the beginning of Jesus' ministry taken off, and he's choosing disciples, and the baptism has taken place. A voice from heaven has declared, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus speaks to his mother here at Cana, he's, he is giving this information, this information that he's going to share again at the cross when he dies, a term of respect, but not a term of endearment, because He's speaking to her as her Lord, as her Savior, not as her little boy anymore. Oh, I bet every mom here has ran across those moments. Do you remember? That was all those, I don't know how it happens, it just happens in a blink, right? One minute that son of yours is sitting on your lap and hugging and kissing and cuddling and then one day he says, Mom, drop me off here. What do you mean? Uh, drop me off here. He wants that mom kiss away from where everybody else is going to see. Right? He's, he is stepping out of that relationship. Here, in Christ's case, he is now what, focused on what he said he was going to do when he was 12 years old. Do you guys remember? 12 years old, just think if you're... Mary and Joseph, I probably would have thought taking care of the Son of God was going to be a piece of cake, right? He's going to be a good kid. I'm not going to have to beat him. Not a lot of disciplining going to have to take place. But then there was this one day that they went to the temple and they're coming home. Two days, two days on the road. And Mary looks over at Joseph and says, hey, where's Jesus? And Jesus looks over or Joseph looks over at Mary and says, I thought you had him. <laughs> so they start asking. Nobody's seen Jesus for two days. Have you ever lost a kid for two days? <laughs> what is that like for you? You lose one of your children. Now, you lose God's son. <laughs> I don't know. 
I think there's a whole lot more happening in that story than the Bible lets us know. They go and they find Jesus. You remember he's at the temple, blowing away the priest, talking to the priest. And, and uh, Mary runs up to him, Jesus, what have you done to us? Remember what he said? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? And here at the wedding at Cana, picking his disciples, the baptism's taking place, it's begun. It's begun, and Jesus is, is letting her know. Then he says one other phrase that he's going to repeat multiple times in the Gospel of John. It says, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. The very first time he says it is to his mother. And the last time he says it in John chapter 17 is to his father, only it's different. In John 17 verse 1, Jesus spoke these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour is come. At his mom, he's saying, look... I got three years till the cross, Ma. Three years to the cross, but I got to be about my father's business. And in John 17, he's going to lift his eyes to his father in heaven, and he's going to say, glorify me with the glory which we had before the worlds began. My hour is come. So he's beginning that ministry. He's laying out this idea, but I don't want you to miss I don't want you to miss what, what happens next. Because Mary looks over at the servants and she says, do whatever he says. And that's not like a, a Mary being tricky, like moms do. Like, I didn't hear anything you said. Just do it anyway. That, it's not that. What it is, is Mary um, surrendering to Christ and saying to the servants, do what he says. If he says, don't do nothing, don't do nothing. If he says, do something, do it. Do whatever he says. It's a surrender of control, surrender of being in charge, surrender that, that I can somehow manipulate the situation and bring the situation to, around to what I want it to be. So she, in her surrender, is saying to the, to the servants, you obey him, whatever he says. Whatever he tells you, whatever he lays out for you, <clears throat> you just do whatever he says. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are the jars with which all the members of the feast would have come in and gone through a ritual cleansing. Ritual washing. Every time they ate, there was a ritual washing. Every time, and this is a multi-day affair, right? So they'd have a feast, they're celebrating, what are they saying? The, the whole idea of the Jewish wedding celebration is a picture of the kingdom of heaven. It's the kingdom of God. When God describes the marriage supper of the Lamb, you know he never describes the end of it. Because it's a feast, it's a celebration. It's everything we've ever wanted. Now, as human beings, we don't measure up, right? We can't accomplish that. In fact, we take the things that God intends to be glorified and show <clears throat> His glory, 
and his majesty and his goodness, and we mess them up, right? Because at the marriage supper of the Lamb, there will be no drunk uncles. But at the marriage celebration with men, sometimes there are, right? Sometimes we act out of accordance with God's clear teaching of Scripture. And so we recognize this reality. But these, this was their ceremonial cleansing that they would participate in. So he says to them, fill the jars. Fill them all up. So you have six. At the minimum, you have 120 gallons that Jesus is bringing together. And they filled them up and he said to them, now take some to the master of the feast. And I, I am of the mind that when the servant dipped that ladle down in to, to fill up a cup for the master of ceremonies, the guy that's keeping everything going in the wedding, that would be the DJ today, right? This is the master of the feast, the, the guy who's saying, okay, we're going to play this game now, or, or we're going to gather here to eat, or, or hey, we're going home for tonight, we'll see you guys all back tomorrow, and we'll continue what's going on, whatever things were happening, this guy controlled all those all those things. Sometimes a wedding feast could last seven days. Celebrating, right? Not the way we think of celebration, celebrating God's way. And so he's saying, gather this together, put these things together. And so the servants were obedient. And I think when the servant dipped that ladle and pulled it out, he looked at it. It's like, that was water a minute ago. That was water a minute ago. So, in verse 9 it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Sorry, I jumped ahead. You guys definitely don't want to go that far ahead. We can if you want, but that's John chapter 12, and you'll be confused. So when the master of the feast had tasted the water, uh, the water now became wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. And I don't want you to miss this, because it's kind of the idea behind the whole miracle. So the master of ceremonies, the DJ, tastes it, and he's like, man, wow, that's, that's really good wine. And he gets the groom, who does not even know what's going on who may only have the idea, the hint, right, that, that I'm not sure I have enough if this keeps going, if this party keeps going. I'm not sure that I have all sufficiency to be everything that is necessary in this relationship. And now the, the master of the ceremony, <clears throat> he's going to call him, and he's going to say, everyone serves the good wine first. What do you think he's thinking? He's probably thinking, Dude, I, I got the best I could afford. This is it. But the master of ceremony says, they, they bring out the good wine and then after, the poor. But you have kept the good wine till now. The best is yet to come, right? And so the groom is receiving the praise from what... Jesus Christ 
had accomplished. He's receiving that which, which was given to him. Now, when we look at this, we see that you have a, a circumstance that would have been the condemnation of the groom. That would have been the humiliation of the groom. But the groom's not even aware of his situation. Life just normal. It's the same case when we get into John chapter 3 and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The world was condemned already, but it doesn't understand its condemnation. The world doesn't want the light because its deeds are evil because it loves its sin. This is what the first three chapters of John are laying out for us. And so here you have a groom, doesn't even know the circumstances around him, doesn't understand that, that he's about to be humiliated, that what would have happened before all the guests would have been a proclamation that the groom can't take care of the bride, that the groom's not enough, that he doesn't have his act together, that he hasn't got a place prepared for, he's probably not going to be able to take care of her financially all the days of her life, and and so this was symbolized by this failure. And he doesn't even know about it. And off in the back, there's a group of disciples, about half the disciples, right? And Jesus and a group of servants. And Mary didn't know what happened. Nobody else even has a clue. Everybody's going to go to bed one Passover evening. And they're going to wake up to the news that Jesus Christ was crucified. And then he's buried. And they're not even going to know what happened. They're not even going to know that they're insufficiency. They're not even going to know that they're inadequacy. They're not going to know that their inability to meet the needs necessary to have a relationship with the God of the universe. They're not going to know any of those things. All they know is what they've always known. And three days later, starting with some women shouting, He is risen, that's all going to change. Forty days after that, on the, on the, or 50 days, we come to the time of the Pentecost. Peter's going to walk out and he's going to preach a message, right? And the Holy Spirit's going to come and the church is going to be born. What is that birth? It's described as new wine. The wine, the sufficiency. I am everything you need. Every other groom is going to fall short, but Jesus Christ is the groom for the bride, the church, right? She is his bride. And he's going to say to her in John chapter 14, I got to go away. I got to go to my father's house to prepare a place for you. What's he saying? Just like the wedding ceremony, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But if I go... I will come again. I will come to do what? To receive you to myself. So the, the groom would come to the bride and say, today's the wedding day. She never knew when the wedding day was. 
She just knew whatever was being spread from the neighbors. Hey, hey, there's a group. It looks like your groom's on his way. Better dig out that dress. Yeah, you think, oh, no, I get like six hours to get ready. Maybe. He's got a ways to walk. Hopefully you get news early enough, right? But you better be ready. Isn't there something in the Bible about that? Right? Being ready. Being ready for when the groom comes, and the groom's going to come, and he's, and he's going to gather up his bride, and he's going to take her to the Father's house, and she's going to have everything she needs. Everything that she lacks, everything that she could ever want is going to be found in her groom. That's the story that Jesus is telling, that John is laying out for us in the wedding at Cana, what it is that God is able to accomplish for us. And all of this <clears throat> is happening. And I, I don't want to cloud it up with going over the ideas of is wine bad or is wine good? Is it okay to have a drink? It's not okay to have a drink. Jesus made grape juice or Jesus made wine. Now we're becoming distracted. Now, now we get distracted about our own uh, agendas. You guys like to watch the news now? I hate watching the news. You know why? Because depending on who you watch in the news, they're framing the news. You guys know what that means? They frame it. I'll, I'll give you a, uh, an easy example. Um, <clears throat> rioters are tear gassed at the church that they lit on fire the night before. And then the next piece of data, President Trump goes and has a picture at that church with a Bible, which every, pa every pastor, every uh, president has, has done at one time or another in their presidency. So one news agency will frame it like this. President Trump tear gases protesters so he can take a picture. That's framing. That's how they framed it. Another will say, rioters tear gassed. President Trump visits the, the site of the church fire and has a picture taken with his Bible. The framing comes from the news people. The data is some people got tear gassed. And President Trump visited a church that they tried to burn down. That's the data. The rest is how we spin it. In Bible study, we call being faithful to the data exegesis. It means we're just trying to let the data speak. Eisegesis is when I bring, uh, no, it's not, that's not Jesus' name. It just sounds like it. Eisegesis is when I take my opinion and I frame the data by my opinion. Are you guys tr traveling with me so far? Every time Christians talk about drinking or not drinking or wine, good or bad, we all do the same thing. We, we bring our traditions, our own struggles, our own feelings, and we frame the data with our feelings, right? But we want to be people who are faithful to the Word of God. When, and we, when we're faithful to the word of God, Psalm 104, 14 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for men to cultivate, that he may bring forth from the earth 
You give wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face to shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine and bread are just things. What you do with them takes you into either the path of the wise or the path of the fool. Right? Proverbs 28, 7 says, The one who keeps the law is a son with understanding, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. That means if you aren't able to say no to bread, that's a problem. Is bread evil? No. It's not good for me. I try not to eat it. But it's just bread, right? Are you guys with me? Proverbs 21 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Whoever is, what's the word? Led astray. There is a a consistent symbol in Scripture of wine equaling joy. Not because being drunk equals joy. That's not true. But wine symbolizes the gathering of people together. We can argue alcohol content doesn't make any difference. I could care less. The, the Bible talks about wine when it uses the word wine. The exact same word is used for the one not to be drunk with wine as the word used that Jesus made wine. So if Jesus made grape juice, you're not to be grump, drunk with grape juice. If Jesus made wine, then you're not to be drunk with wine. Do you understand? One word, not multiple so we, we lay the idea out. Scripture tells us that Jesus ate and drank but never sinned. What does that mean? Luke 7.33, For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man comes both eating and drinking, and you say to him, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinner. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Scripture lays out, that's the charge they brought against Jesus, that he ate and drank. The charge they brought against John the Baptist when he didn't. Basically, it doesn't matter whether you eat or drink or you don't eat or drink. If you are standing for the truth of God's word, they're going to hate you. Either for or against. Every Passover meal is made up of four glasses of wine. Jesus celebrated three Passovers. They have four, four times that the, that the wine cup is filled. In fact, we read one of them uh, t- this morning. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it together with you in my Father's kingdom. What happens in his Father's kingdom? The marriage supper of the Lamb? Yeah. It's not intended to be a thing. We, we know this. The Word of God teaches us to be sober-minded. Period. Do you ever get to be not sober-minded? No. So be sober-minded. The Word of God teaches us to care more about our brother than our own freedom. Right? So Paul would say, he's a meat eater. Paul would say, if my brother has a problem with meat, I'll never eat, what did he say? Meat again. So if my brother has a problem, it would stand to reason 
that you should never drink again if that's what's necessary for your brothers. But acknowledge and understand that the Word of God uses the picture of wine as joy. And it's intended to be such. When we look at, at John 2, verse 11, it says, Now this was the first of his signs. Jesus did it. Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And I just want to, I'm going to go over just a few questions I think Jesus answers in this moment. <clears throat> what does it mean he manifested his glory when he, when he made uh, wine from the water? I think the first thing he did is he told us who he is. Who he is. Who is he? He is the Lord of the feast. Him. He is the real provider for his bride, able to prepare a place for her that will never run dry. In Isaiah 25, listen, Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tear from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. The Lord has spoken. That's a description. I believe that's a description of the kingdom of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is coming a feast. Our sufficiency falls far short, but Christ's sufficiency is never short. He is the true Lord of the feast. They will never run out of joy because in his presence is what? The fullness of joy. It has nothing to do with the wine's a picture. Don't get freaked out by wine. Hold on to the understanding that if the fullness of joy is in the presence of the king, that the fullness of our sufficiency is in him, that he is the groom who is able to care. Well, what did he come to do? He's saying, who is he? I'm the Lord of the feast. I'm what Isaiah 25 was talking about. Then what did he come to do? He came to take care of his bride. I go to prepare a place for you, right? I'm getting things ready for the bride. I'm saving her. I'm covering her in my blood. I'm preparing a, an opportunity for her to feast in the presence of my father. Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. There she is. The church. Lowering down. All eyes are on her. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. God's throne, a voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God will himself will be their God, and he will wipe away. What's it say? Didn't that sound familiar? Didn't we just read that in Isaiah 25? You don't think those are linked? 
This idea of God taking away all our pain, all our sorrow, all that suffering, wiping it away in a moment and saying that he is the total sufficiency that we pretend at as husband and wife in a marriage picture that is a picture of who God is, right? You know that, that the husband and wife become one, right? That phrasing in Genesis is the same phrasing of, for the Lord being one. Hero Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Same phrasing, same words. He's picturing, we do a, a, a we, we, we're trying in our marriage and a marriage relationship to illustrate the picture of, of God's sufficiency, but we fall short. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream about all the kingdoms of man, we have all the kingdoms of man failing because the real king is Jesus Christ. We're trying to emulate the king, Jesus Christ, in our ruling and reigning, but we fall short. We have feet of clay, right? Our sufficiency is totally in Christ. So who is he? He's the Lord of the feast. What did he come to do? He came to get a bride. To show the sufficiency of all that he has. What does he offer? What is he offering? What is it that Jesus is offering? He is offering the real for the cheap. The guy said, this is the best wine I've ever had in my life. You you think there's another wine somewhere on earth that tasted better than what Jesus made? Jesus' wine was, was the best he had ever had. And how many ways in our lives are we living off some cheap imitation? Some cheap imitation of what Jesus Christ promises us in the real. We're living off of the fake. We're living off of what's not real. Jesus has come to give us the real. He said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. <clears throat> And we substitute that abundant life, that abundant offering from Jesus Christ, we substitute it with a bunch of other cheap thrills, whatever. We're running around drinking Mad Dog 2020. (laughs) No. All the people who don't know what that is, praise the Lord. All the people who do know what it is, now I know. It's just, it's just cheap garbage wine for people who are looking for a, a quick drunk on a buck. And that's what the point is. That's what we, we substitute the real joy that Christ has to give us with drunkenness. And that's not anything that Jesus is providing. Jesus is not providing drunkenness. He's providing joy. He's providing sufficiency. He's providing everything that we need. And we as man, we take what God provides and we abuse it. Tell me what good thing God gives we haven't done that with. Sex? Oh yeah, we, we, we got to mess that up, right? We don't want to do it God's way. You think any, anything else is different than that? The good gifts that God gives, can they all be abused? Do we abuse food? Is food good? Yeah, we abuse food. How about in the United States? Yeah, we abuse food. 
Okay, I abuse food. You guys don't have to take it. Right? So those are, these are all the realities. We take the cheap for the real. The Bible says of the Lord, taste and see that he is good. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us to, to, to not just know with head knowledge, but to taste, to experience, to touch. I, I can say to you, honey is sweet, but if you've had honey and you sit and think about it, you can almost bring that taste to your tongue. That's, that's the relationship Scripture is calling us to have with the Lord. Isaiah 55, listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah 55. Come unto me, everyone who thirsts. Come to the water. Those who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, for things that don't satisfy? Why do you spend your labor, your work, your effort on things that do not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. God's saying, I have everything you need. It's in me. That first miracle, we learned that they were out of wine. And I want to learn from that miracle to admit to God, I don't have enough. I'm not enough. I need to admit the scripture would say it like this, admit that you're a sinner. For all fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners who fall short. So admit that I'm a sinner. I'm out of wine. And understand that Jesus provides what I cannot provide for myself. It's found in him. I admit that I'm a sinner. And I admit that Jesus gives me everything that I'll ever need. And if I humble myself before the Lord, He will exalt me. If He can change the nature of water and turn it into wine, He can change your nature. He can change mine. In Ezekiel 36, the Lord declares, I will take your heart of stone and I will give you What's he say? A heart of flesh. I can soften your heart. I can change your nature. The disciples saw all this from the back room. Nobody in the wedding ever knew. They continued celebrating. Time continued to go on after Jesus died and rose again. People still, still got up in the morning and went and planted crops. They still worked. They still labored. Jesus looked at his disciples as he ascended into heaven, right? And he said, now, go make disciples of every nation. Because they don't know. But you know, you saw me turn the water into wine. You saw me die and rise again. You saw me perpetuate this reality that I am everything you need. So go and tell. This is why John starts with this story. 
because it becomes a backdrop, a picture kind of in the, in the foreground of everything that Jesus is going to be doing for the next 21 chapters. How he's going to show that he is what we need. I hope you know that today. I hope you know that he is everything that you need. And I hope if you don't, that you would repent and believe. Call on his name and allow him to become the Lord of your feast. Amen. Once you stand with me, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, for your truth, for what scripture declares. Lord, I thank you above all things that you are sufficient, that you are everything that I need. I thank you that this story is not about whether you should drink wine or not. This story is about whether or not Jesus Christ is the Lord of your feast. Is he your sufficiency? Because with him, there will never be lack. you will have everything that you need. Everything that you need, you will find in Him. The world was condemned. It's on its way to hell. Jesus is saying, no. You don't have to accept that reality. We lift up our hands and call on his name. Romans says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He has made a way. God, I pray that everyone within the hearing of my voice who doesn't know you would call on you for salvation put their faith and trust in you and know you are everything we need and that there will be a day when you stand with us before the Father when we enjoy a feast that will never end wine that will never lack fellowship that will never grow stale where we will have every tear that we will weep in this world over the pain and suffering of this life, we'll have it all wiped away in a moment by our groom because he is all we need. We give you praise and glory in this place. In Jesus' name.